All right, good morning. How's everyone doing today? Pretty good? Uh, I was at a wedding last night, at JD's wedding. We danced so hard, I got nauseous. Um, my legs were weak, and uh, I think I'm just getting old, but it, we had a great time. Uh, so that's why JD's not here this morning. Uh, but Abba did a great job, so thanks for the worship team for leading us in some awesome worship. Yeah. All right. Well, we are six weeks into our series, Long Road Home. Uh, if you're just joining us, here's kind of the gist. We're going through the Songs of Ascents right now, which are a collection of 15 psalms. It's Psalm 120 to 134, which Israel as a nation curated together. And it's kind of like a playlist that you would create on Spotify. And they would use it to sing, uh, sing these songs as they made these pilgrimages back to Jerusalem multiple times a year. And that journey is long, it's arduous, and so they would sing as they hiked, as they marched, as they traveled, as they sat around a campfire on their way back home to Jerusalem. And last week in Psalm 124, we get a glimpse into the heart of King David as he led some of these pilgrimages, as he reflects on a time where God just miraculously intervened to save his life uh, and really everyone in his entire kingdom. And, and David reflects on this near-death experience, and he attributes the salvation not to his arm or his strength or his military prowess uh, or to his military or, or even the horses or sword, like whatever that is. He, he, he gave all of the glory over to God. He says in verse 1 of, of Psalm 124, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side. And then he repeats that a couple of times to make sure it's very clear, hey, this is not me, this is God. And he says, pointing over and over again to the fact that God was the person who showed up in, in the hour of need. And again, it wasn't his army, it wasn't his horses, it wasn't his chariots, not, not only his own strength or his own wisdom, but it was God who was the one who stepped in and practically and, 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 and just wholeheartedly rescued Israel. And so David celebrates with this song. Uh, he, he's inviting all of Israel in to sing along with him because what he's realizing and what he knows uh, is that there's tremendous value in reminiscing and recounting the ways that God has intervened in our lives. Because what that does is that it humbles us. It humbles us into our view of our existence and being able to see that accurately. And it's not just that God intervenes when we're in, our, in like the dire straits or like when we're in the need of a miracle. Um, these moments do point to the fact that God is always there. Like we are always dependent on God in the little moments and the big moments. And so that living and, 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 and breathing every single day is actually a miracle that ought to not be taken for granted. And that's really not the only place that we see God's grace and His mercy. Um, and, and that's what we're continuing on here as, as we go through this sermon series, is seeing how dependent we are on God. And so recounting and recalling how God has brought us to where we are also serves as a reminder to God's faithfulness. It reminds us of how God uh, brought us through challenging seasons of our lives, how, how he built our faith through those experiences. And we talked about this last week, that David didn't just wake up one morning with a ton of faith. His faith was forged through years of trusting in God. As a little shepherd boy, as he had to fend off lions and bears in the fields, as a young man, as he's fighting in these terrifying, horrific battles, and then as an older man, as he's trying to lead an entire nation of people. And so the trials that he faced, they weren't just inconveniences for him. They weren't just things that he had to get through. These were the furnace in which deeper faith in God was forged for David, and that's how it works for us as well. And so we saw uh, in David, 
what we saw in David in Psalm 124 was not just his ability to comprehend his fragile humanity and his need for God. It, it, it wasn't just a desire to give God all the glory, but that those two things required a tremendous amount of faith and trust in God. And that's what Psalm 125 is all about. What do our lives look like when we continue uh, and, and commit to continuous faith and trust in God? And what does it mean to even have trust in God? And then also, what are the consequences of not placing trust in God? So let's find out together. If you haven't opened up, we're in Psalm 125, and we're going to start with verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. The psalmist says that those who trust in God are like Mount Zion. This is the mountain on, on top of Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, on top of which Jerusalem rests. It's more of like a really massive, large hill than a mountain, but the point is that it's incredibly sturdy. It's incredibly strong. And I don't know if you've ever climbed a mountain before, but when you make it to the summit, you're not kind of like walking around like you're on a tightrope, right? Because when you're up there, at least where it's flat, like maybe if you're on a ridge or something at the top, you should be careful. But if you're on like flat ground at the top of a mountain, there's confidence as you walk. Like if you're on top of Mount Greylock or on top of Mount Washington, uh, those mountains aren't going to like tip over while you're standing up there. Mountains don't just crack in half. They, they don't crumble as you're standing at the top. They don't explode unless you're on a volcano, but that's not what he's talking about here. See, the psalmist is pointing out that mountains are immovable. In fact, there's really no other object in the world, in the natural world, that we can point to that would articulate with such vivid grandeur how solid and firm something is. Mountains are the epitome of massive, forever standing, of something that is strong, something that is stable. And that's what the psalmist uses to talk about those who put their faith and their trust in God. And the song is celebrating the fact that those who trust in the Lord are sturdy and strong and unable to be moved, solid and stable. Well, that's great and all, but I don't think, I don't know how many of us in this room feel necessarily sturdy or solid or strong or immovable this morning. I think maybe some of us by God's grace, but if you're anything like me, you might not feel immovable, like, like, an, like a stable mountain. And some of us are coming here in this, in this space right now after a long, really hard week, maybe in the midst of a long, really hard season. And maybe last night for you was a hard and really long night. See, there are times when we might not feel immovable. We might feel actually kind of like a log that's being tossed to and fro in the waves of the ocean. We, we might feel like a flag that's just ripping back and forth in the wind. If you're like me, sometimes you maybe feel like a pebble being kicked down the road, much less like Mount Zion. And I'll be honest, when I first read this, I was like, wow, that's really awesome. That was my first thought. And my second thought was, wow, I surely don't feel like a mountain right now. But I've, I've spent more time digging into this passage and meditating on it. I found it to be incredibly encouraging. So that's what I, I want to say to you this morning. Uh, don't reflexively recoil back or stop in your ears just because it seems a little bit outlandish. Let your guard down a little bit as we read this together. This isn't just a fluffy few verses that you throw onto a coffee mug or, or, or stitch into a pillow. And I think if we can make it through this together, I'm confident that we're going to be surprised at just how encouraging this psalm can be for us, especially 
if we don't feel like a mountain this morning. Now, there are a few things that we need to break down in these first verses. The first is, what does it mean to trust in the Lord? What does it mean to trust in the Lord? In verse 1, it says, when the, uh, the psalmist says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. So what does it look like practically for someone to be trusting in the Lord? And we need to drill down here because this phrase is tossed around in evangelical circles and, and even in secular culture today uh, pretty loosely. And, and instead of conveying deep, uh, profound exhortation, I think that in some ways it's turned into a bland, generic optimism. Uh, you got to just trust in the Lord and, 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 and it'll work out which may come through, right, it may come from a place of deep spiritual conviction, but what's often conveyed is just hang in there, like it's going to work itself out. I think if we truly reflect on what it means to trust in the Lord, uh, how challenging of an exhortation that actually is, I don't think we'd ever offer it as just an off-the-cuff remedy. It, 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 it's like if a friend comes to you and they're like, man, my wife and I having some serious problems right now, and you say to them, hey man, you just got to love your wife. It's going to work out, right? Which like, of course is true. Like you need to love your spouse, but it's also communicated with such a blandness that it's like you're telling me to like, oh, you just need to brush your teeth, right? And then like you'll have nice teeth. So I'm not saying that you should never encourage somebody uh, to trust in the Lord. I think on the contrary, this needs to be done more, but in order to do it in a helpful, in a fruitful way, we need to understand what it is that we're actually challenging one another to do. And so what does it mean to trust in the Lord? Well, the Hebrew word that's being used here is batak, uh, which means to have confidence in, to be bold and secure in. Another way it can be used is, is to feel safe in something. An image that comes to mind uh, often uh, when, and when I think about like, what it means to trust is in rock climbing. Um, in rock climbing, you actually have two kinds of trust that I think are being played out pretty vividly. You have theoretical trust, and you have active trust. Theoretical trust and active trust. Let me tell you what I mean. The first time that you go rock climbing, you put on that harness, and you click yourself in, like you have some theoretical trust in the rope and the harness and the whole system. Like in theory, that rope is not going to break. The carabiner that's clipping everything together is not going to bend and, 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 and snap. The harness that you're wearing is, is going to hold you in it. See, if you didn't have theoretical trust, then you wouldn't strap in in the first place. You, you wouldn't even think about climbing 30 feet up in the air. You'd sit on the mat and watch as your friends climb up that wall. But see, something happens when you're climbing. As you make it to the top of that route, your theoretical trust in the entire apparatus gets tested. And in order to come down off that wall, you need to step off of that wall. You need to go against every single impulse in your body, every instinct in your brain that says, like, don't let go. You're going to die if you let go of this wall. And that's happening inside you. And, and, and you need to activate some sort of active trust in the rope, in the carabiner, in, in the harness. And you take the whole weight of yourself off of that wall. Now, that moment is really scary. It, it's nerve-wracking for the, for, for the person who goes rock climbing for the first time. And this moment is where your theoretical trust intersects uh, with your active trust. But over time, you develop batak. You develop confidence in the safety system. You feel secure in it. And instead of kind of gingerly letting go of the wall slowly, like releasing your weight off, like uh, just, just pound by pound, what, what you do is you can leap with boldness as you actively trust in the rope and your harness to keep you from falling to your doom. This is one way I think that we can understand trust in God. 
that as we grow as Christians and spend time reading God's word and hearing biblical teaching, we are presented with ways that we're invited to trust God and ways that we can submit parts of our lives, our resources, our time, our, our minds and our hearts in God, to God in trust. Ways that, that we're challenged to maybe change the way that we're living our lives, maybe the way that we're thinking about things, or maybe even the way that we're feeling about things. And these challenges in the moment, they require us to lean off the wall a little bit, to put our full weight into how Jesus is initiating with us. And see, we might believe and trust in theory that, that those are good things to do, or even that we ought to trust God and lean in with faith in ways that are being presented to us, but until that intersects with us actually taking a step off that wall, that proverbial wall, and executing our trust in an active way, it remains a theoretical trust. Something that we might believe in with our minds, but that which has not actually been tested in our lives. Those who trust in God, in the way that this passage is talking about, do so in theory and actively. And this means that we're not just amassing theoretical trust in God, but, but living out that trust in the various situations and circumstances of life when God calls us to take that step of faith. This is an aspect of sanctification and transformation in the life of a believer, in the life of one who trusts in the Lord. That as we read God's word and as we interact with the perfectly righteous Jesus, we are compelled to respond and to act. I was speaking with Andrew Dagrin this week, uh, and we were, he was just sharing about how God has been really convicting him and challenging him and encouraging him and transforming him. And, and he attributes this fact to uh, the, the reality that he's been spending a lot more time with Jesus. He's been spending a lot more time reading God's word and praying. And he said this to me. He said, it's like being in the presence of the sun. You can't be near it and not be burned. And what he's, what he's trying to say is that as we engage with Jesus in his word, as we spend time in the holiness of Jesus' presence, we can't not be challenged and compelled to grow and to change and to be transformed. But that process is one of being initiated by Jesus, but also responding by taking steps of active trust and faith. And those who are actively trusting in God experience transformation in their lives. And we'll be digging in deeper in a minute into how our lives look different when we trust God, but our first diagnostic test is this. If we honestly examine our lives and determine that our lives wouldn't look any different if we didn't trust Jesus, we may not be actively trusting Jesus in our lives because active trust transforms lives. Those of us who have grown up in the church, who have amassed a lot of theoretical trust without activating it, or maybe others of us who are in a season of spiritual wander, uh, like wandering or, or flakiness might have lots of theoretical trust. And we may trust and have faith on paper, but God invites us to live lives of active trust in Him, which leads to radical change and transformation in the life of one in relationship with Jesus. So what, what does active trust in, in, in the Lord lead to? Well, in verse 1, we see those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. Well, what does that look like? Well, I think there are three ways as we read this passage um, that, that this can look in our lives and as we're being transformed when we actively trust in the Lord. I think what we see is uh, active trust in God produces stability in our lives. Active trust in God produces good works in our lives, and active trust in God produces eternal salvation in our lives. 
So number one, active trust in God produces stability. When we actively trust in God, which again means that as Jesus initiates with us in his word and challenges us to change what we're doing or, or what we're thinking or maybe what we're feeling, and then we respond in obedience out of faith and trust in him, as we do this, we experience the personal stability of a mountain. And Jesus made this exact point at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, which is the best sermon ever preached. If you want to talk about being challenged to change the way that you act, think, or feel, just read Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and you'll have plenty of intersections of theoretical and active faith and trust in the Lord. And at the end of this sermon, Jesus wraps it all together with this. In chapter 7, verse 24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain and, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house and fell, and great was the fall of it. The two contrasting images uh, <clears throat> in this passage are, are building your house upon a giant solid rock or on top of loose sand. He's saying those who listen, respond in faith, trust in Jesus are like those who, who are building their house upon the rock. And those who don't respond in faith and trusting obedience will be building their house on sand. Sand is flimsy. It shifts. It collapses. And a house that's built on sand cannot withstand the storms and the floods of life. It buckles beneath the weight of the storm. And eventually it crumbles as the hardships and the trials of life beat down on that house. And some of us here might be realizing right now, like, wow, my house has been built on sand. Like, man, I feel as though everything around me is sinking and collapsing into the ocean right now. See, in the same way that a big storm tests the structural integrity of a home, I think for us, COVID, remote learning, remote work, having challenging children that keep us up all night, tension with, with our spouses and, and butting heads constantly, the contempt of the world on us, maybe the contempt of ourselves on us. Like These are the heavy rains and the harsh winds that have been testing the integrity of our lives. So if you find yourself floundering, being tossed to and fro, constantly in panic or anxiety, constantly wanting to run, constantly wanting to hide, constantly wanting to numb or escape, uh, you're not experiencing the stability that's found in a relationship of trust with Jesus. Now hear me, I'm not saying that if you trust Jesus, then you won't have to deal with COVID anymore or Zoom calls, or you won't have to deal with your spouse or, or your children anymore, or that those storms and the challenges of life that, that have been slamming on you just magically go away and there are blue skies until Jesus comes back. Like that's not what Jesus is getting at. Everyone experiences the storms and the trials of life. All of us get slammed with the challenges that test the integrity of our lives. Some of us every single day. But what Jesus is saying is that the outcome is incredibly different for those who listen and obey him and those who don't. That's the heart of Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27, which we just read. 
that as Jesus is preaching truth and wisdom for three chapters, he's articulating in detail what your life ought to look like as holy members of God's family, that in the end, after hearing all of that, uh, if you choose not to listen to him, then you're building your house on sand. What is sand practically? Well, it's anything other than what God is calling us to do. And we can't know what this is unless we actually read God's word and seeing what he's calling us to do. And since we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, I just want to pull out some of the things that Jesus calls us to do just in these few chapters. And this is a very condensed version of it. So Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If we hear this, but instead continue being arrogant and prideful and haughty and puffed up, uh, we're building our houses on sand. In Matthew 5, uh, verse 6, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If we hear this, but are instead continuing in patterns of sinfulness and, and not caring that we look like Christ or not, we're building our house on sand. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 15, it says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. If you hear this, if we hear this, and we cower away from sharing our faith, if we're hiding in our fear of what people may think about us or may say about us, we're building our houses on sand. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22, you have, heard it's, you have heard that it is said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with this brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. If we hear this and instead continue to harbor resentment and bitterness toward one another, if we continue to lash out in anger, if we continue to treat others with contempt, we're building our house on sand. Matthew says in chapter 5, verse 27, you have heard, it, uh, you have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If we hear this, but continue looking at pornography, if we continue looking at people around us lustfully, if we just go with the flow of our culture, which is hypersexual, we're building our house on sand. See, we can go on and on doing this. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust just destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you hear this, and, and we continue amassing treasures and toys, if we continue finding our satisfaction in money and in new things, putting our hope in the material things of this world, Mercy House, we are building our house on sand. But look at what Jesus says, Matthew 7, verse 24 and 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. When we hear Jesus inviting us to take steps of faith, and then when we respond in obedience, we are actively building our lives upon the rock 
and, the, 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 and we get to experience stability of a mountain when we do that. Which means that when the storms come, and that's not if the storms come, but when the storms come, we're not going to panic. We're not going to freak out. We, we won't reach for the eject button or try to pull on that emergency stop cord. We're not going to try to abandon ship and try to escape and try to run away or try to find some pocket of comfort somewhere out there. We run to our Savior who speaks truth and life, and we believe and trust in him and also what he says. See, when we are living in obedience to Christ, and it's not just obedience for like the sake of obedience. See, obedience born out of trust, it deepens relationship. And like we saw with David last week, and which I mentioned earlier, like David didn't wake up one morning with a ton of trust and faith in God. It took years of hearing and obeying and trusting in the Lord, which developed more and more trust through the years, which gave him the talk. That trust, the boldness, the confidence in God through all the seasons of his life, no matter what he was facing, even when he was facing death, which is what we see in Psalm 124. When we trust the Lord, when we continue an active, wholehearted trust in the Lord and believe his words as we read them in Scripture, there's no amount of rain that can shake us. There's no amount of wind that can knock us off our center. When our life is built on the rock of Jesus, no storm, no matter how vicious or violent it is, will have us abandon our ship. Instead, we're going to grab a cushion, and we're going to take a cat nap right next to Jesus, like we see in the Gospels, even as the whole world around us runs around in absolute panic. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion established on a firm foundation, standing solidly and stable. So a relationship with Jesus where we are living in obedience and active trust of him and his words doesn't just produce some sort of internal sense of calm and peace down inside uh, the depths of our souls, but it also manifests itself outward as well. And that's the second thing we see this morning is that active trust in God produces good works. Look at Psalm uh, 125 in verse 3. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands and do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. The the psalmist here pivots in verse 4 into a prayer for God. They're saying, uh, God, do good. God, we want you to do good. In other words, bless, uh, deal well with, act favorably toward those who are good, those who are upright, which means righteous or correct or just inside of their hearts. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and those who are upright in their hearts. And this might seem well and good, but it poses a serious question for us. What does it mean to be good? What does it mean? Like, how can we be on the receiving end of verse 4 right there? Is goodness something that's connected to our actions? Uh, is this verse saying, God, bless those who are kind and compassionate toward others? Or God, bless those who never cheat? Or God, bless those who don't lie or lust, who spend their resources and their time serving other people? Is that what it's saying? I think in part, yes. Like, good works are a fruit of goodness, just like apples are the fruit of a, of a healthy apple tree. 
And those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are abiding in Him, connected to Him as a healthy branch, a part of a larger vine, should be producing good fruit, good works. Well, how does this happen? Well, what you'll notice as you read through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is that it's not all just self-help content. It's not just for us to, to, to get ourselves right and squared away internally. So much of what's commanded and exhorted by Jesus starts within us, but then it manifests itself outward toward those that are around us. And in some cases, it's impossible to do some of the things that Jesus is calling us to do without other people in our lives. And so as you look through again, like meekness, meekness involves outward humility and gentleness toward other people. This idea of pursuing righteousness and holiness, that models the gospel for people around us. Being a light in in the world, it brings the gospel to those who are still in the dark. Not sinning in our anger toward people means bringing compassion and love to people instead of our contempt. When, When we amputate adultery and lustfulness from our hearts and our minds, it means viewing and treating others around us with the respect and dignity as humans made in the image of God. Storing up treasures in heaven means that we're able to then invest our worldly resources into making disciples and building God's kingdom here on earth. And so, Mercy House, when we live out our lives in relationship with Jesus and actively trust in him by hearing his words and responding obediently, it naturally produces good works. It brings goodness, godly goodly goodness to those who are around us. And so we can sit comfortably as a recipient of this blessing in this prayer in verse 4. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. Now, I do want you to pay very close attention to those last words. Those who are upright in their hearts. Those who are upright in their hearts. What this is getting at is that goodness is not merely an external showcasing of charity. It's a fruit of what's happening on the inside. You can't fake being good, at least not toward God who knows all and sees all with just some behavior modification. That's like stapling ripe apples to a dying fruitless tree and saying, ta-da, like look, everything's good. Doing good things externally does not make you internally good. So don't read this text or hear me right now saying that in order to be good, you just need to do some good. That is not the sermon this morning. The psalmist understands this truth, that goodness is not produced by our actions, but begins with the righteousness within the heart. The problem, though, is that no one is good except for God alone. Jesus says this himself in Mark chapter 10, verse 18. And Paul says in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, as he's quoting Psalm 14 and Isaiah 43, he says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And notice how Paul there is connecting righteousness and goodness uh, of people to the doing of good. He's saying no one is righteous. No one is good. Therefore, no one does any good. Not even one person. Now, this puts us in a challenging spot then. So how are we supposed to understand both of these concepts, which seem very obviously contradictory? Because what we see is the psalmist saying, God, bless those who do good and are righteous. And we see Paul saying, no one is good, no one does good, no one is righteous. 
Are we witnessing some sort of like intergenerational royal brawl in scripture? No, we're not. I think if we read the last uh, verse of this passage, we're going to see how this all wraps together. Psalm 125, verse 5, but those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. As you read this last verse, what you're seeing is the consequence of not living in relationship with God, not having trust and faith in Him. If we build our houses on sand, uh, it's not just the storms of this world that ought to scare us. It's actually the wrath of final judgment, which will truly test the structural integrity of the houses that we have built. And those of us who, who, who have built our houses, built our lives, and have established our souls on sand will be swept away. And Paul says that the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23, which means if we're not building our house on the rock of Jesus Christ and we remain in our sin, then just like 125.5 says right here, we'll be led away as an evildoer into eternal death and separation from God. This is our fate if we are not good, if we are not righteous, which means, according to Paul, who says that no one is righteous, that everyone in this room, in this world, is set to be swept away from the righteous presence of God for all of eternity. That's the conclusion that we arrive at. But the beautiful thing is that God has made a way. He saw us in our sinfulness. He saw that we were unrighteous. He knew that our fate was to be eternally separated from him. And he declared that he's going to fix the problem. He's going to do something about it. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, which is filthiness and, and unrighteousness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, God knew that the problem of sin was not about outward actions because God knew, just like the psalmist is saying, that righteousness is something that comes from deep within. And so the solution to the problem is not some more rules and more statutes or ways to, to modify our behavior. The solution would be to heal the source of all of that brokenness and all that unhealthiness in the very core of who we are, in our heart of hearts, to give us a new heart. And not just that, but to give us His Spirit to live inside of us to then empower good works from a place of goodness that is God. So Mercy House, we cannot do any good with bad hearts. The only way that we do good is by receiving new hearts from God, by being empowered supernaturally by His Holy Spirit. See, indeed, like Paul was right when he said, no one is good and no one is righteous. And indeed, Jesus was right when he said that no one is good except for God alone. But those who are Christians become one with God through His Spirit, being made righteous and good and having the righteousness and goodness of God dwelling inside of us so that we who are, who are in Christ are good and righteous. Not because of our actions or our good works, but because of God's. And flowing out of an upright, righteous heart of God, 
having been made good and righteous in the soul of our being, we then, by the grace of God, are able to do good. And so when verse 4 says, do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts, in other words, God, bless those who have your heart. Bless those who have your goodness inside of them. Bless those who by your grace have been transformed by your spirit to miraculously do some good in this world. Bless those who you have made to be your people. Mercy House, this is an incredible blessing. But how does it actually happen? How does God do his supernatural heart surgery and give us a new heart and give us this spiritual transformation? This brings us to the last point of the sermon this morning. Active trust in God produces eternal salvation. Active trust in God produces eternal salvation. Active trust is a part of the ongoing relationship that we have with Christ, but it's also the first step into a relationship with God. Trusting in Jesus is what enables the heart surgery of salvation to happen. Trusting in Jesus is where it all begins. Uh, It's what rescues us from the wages of our sin, which is our eternal death and our separation from God. John 3.16, and I know that you may have heard this before, but see it and hear it with fresh eyes and ears. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What Jesus is saying to us here is that whoever believes in me, in other words, whoever trusts in me, whoever puts their faith in me, whoever builds their house on me will not experience eternal death but instead have eternal life. Those who trust me won't have to pay their debt to sin, but I will cover that debt with my life. This is what it means to become a follower of Christ. Not by memorizing facts, accumulating a bunch of knowledge, not by sitting through a class, not by attending church on Sundays or just doing the right things. We don't become Christians by being nice to one another or giving our money away. We don't receive new hearts and the inner being of who we are by being good people. No one is good. No, not one. And so the only way that we receive a new heart, the only way that we are made righteous is by faith, by trusting in Jesus Christ who gives you his goodness and his righteousness, which he purchased at the cost of his life. If you're not a Christian this morning, know that this invitation is for you. And Jesus is offering you a new heart to be cleansed from your sin and to be made righteous and to experience eternal life with him. And then the opportunity to build your house on the rock. The way that you receive that is by placing your faith in him, by putting your batak, your your trust, your confidence in him. And if you do that this morning, you join the others in this room who have taken that step of faith. And, and we together, as those who trust in the Lord, can be ministered to by this psalm, even when we don't feel like a mountain, in a very profound and encouraging way. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth forevermore. Mercy House. Trust in 
the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Not just theoretically, but actively. That means reading God's word. It means listening to God's spirit, which lives inside of you, and then respond in in obedience in the place where he's calling you to trust him. I don't know what that place is. I don't know what that thing is. It's different for each of us, but I know that as I read this psalm, like I want to live in that place of active trust, and I want you to live in that place of active trust because that place of active trust has stability. There, there's fruitfulness in that place, and there's eternal salvation in that place. See, mountains don't move. Mountains, relative to our individual short life stands, they are forever. Not only are, are we to trust in the Lord like a mountain, uh, verse 2 says that God surrounds us like the mountains that surround Jerusalem. See, this in part is why Jerusalem as a city is so valuable, why it's been fought over for millennia, because there was a natural protective barrier of mountains all around the city, which itself is founded on top of a mountain. Like, not many places in the world are like this. Mercy House, if you are actively trusting in Jesus as he leads you, you are like Jerusalem. You are firmly established on a mountain, guarded by the Lord like a mountain surrounding Jerusalem. And it may not feel like that at times, but as the rain pours and as the winds of life blow, and as all of those around you are panicking and running around and not knowing what to do, you can trust in the Lord and know that when you trust in the Lord, you will be established like a mountain that is guarded like Jerusalem by God himself, not just in this, this lifetime, but for all time, for all time. C.S. Lewis says, a man can't always be defending truth. There must be a time that he feeds on it. This morning, I want to encourage you to feed on this truth. To know that as you build your house on the rock that is Jesus Christ, it will stand. It will stand. And as you trust the Lord, as you experience the stability and the eternal security that is in him, you can go. You can go and do good. You can go and be generous with your time and your resources. You can serve one another uh, sacrificially. You can bring light to the darkness. You can offer this message of stability in Christ to a world of wobbliness and uncertainty. Know that whatever challenges that you experience, and I know that there are many, God will guard you and keep you from this time forth and forevermore. Listen, we all have trust issues. Every single one of us. Being asked to trust in Jesus, to actively put our whole weight into him, to build our entire life on him, It's not an easy ask. It's not. But this is the encouragement that we experience every single time that we come and take communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it saying, this is my body which has been broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Jesus initiates And he invites us to trust by putting all of himself on the line. He demonstrates his trustworthiness by offering up his life for each of us. And and that's what we're reminded of when we take communion. It's never easy to take that first step off of the wall. And, And every new place where God is calling us to respond in trust and faith is like that first moment 
of trust stepping off of that wall all over again. But know that He will hold us fast. He won't let go. God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for how good You are to us. God, we thank You for how You show Your love to us, how You establish us in Yourself like the city of Jerusalem. God, thank You for Your invitation to trust You. Thank You for the hope that we can have as we build our house on the rock. I pray for those who feel like they are not building their house on the rock, that You would encourage them, that You would empower them to listen and to obey and trust Your words, God. Thank you that as we read this passage, we see obedience in a different light, God. Obedience, not just for the sake of obedience, but obedience as a response to a a relationship of trust with you. So I pray for those who don't have a relationship of trust with you, that they would take that first step this morning. I pray for those of us who have had a relationship of trust for years, and like David, can look back and reflect on all the ways that you have been trustworthy and faithful, that that would encourage us as we move forward as we're in the season that we're in. Father, I pray that we would find ultimate stability in you, not in the things of this world, not in the hope of tomorrow, but in you, God. I pray that as we sing these songs, that we would be able to worship from the core of who we are. Lord, I thank you for each and every person here. We pray that you would work powerfully in mighty ways in their lives this morning. And we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.